Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, we've covered a lot of UFO beliefs um, on the show over the years. We've talked about alien abduction experiences, strange lights in the sky, ancient alien speculation, and we've covered it all with our usual level of skeptical enthusiasm, I would yeah. say. N- not coming at it uh, in order to prove all the stories true and believe, but also appreciating that fantastical beliefs and experiences and even delusions are interesting phenomena that are worth studying and, and paying attention to. Yeah. Why are people reporting these stories? What What is actually occurring that might be interpreted as such? And, and then why do we tell the stories that we tell? Like the, all of these questions are sort of bound up in the same riddle. But to refresh... This is the basic truth of the matter. Humans have always seen things they couldn't explain. And some of these things were actual phenomena, such as shooting stars or unusual weather effects. Mm-hmm. Other times, these were hallucinations, which can occur can occur for a variety of reasons, only some of which entail the ingestion of uh, psychedelics or symptoms of mental illness. And in either case, things seen become become things remembered. And memory is a tricky thing all on its own, highly susceptible to error, to manipulation and change due to personal desires, interpretations, cultural priming, and a host of other factors. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that I often think about doesn't get enough attention when when people discuss fantastical experiences like, say, uh, you know, UFO abduction experiences and sightings and things like that, is uh, is all of these in-between categories that create memory experiences for people or or create, uh, you know, at least in some way or another, lead a person to relate an experience – that are not exactly one of three clear options. The three clear options usually presented are somebody actually physically had this UFO abduction experience. Mm -hmm. They really were taken up. Or they're lying and they're just making up a story they know to be false. Or they hallucinated it. Like Mm -hmm. they had a vision where they imagined they really believed all this stuff was happening to them at the time and that, you know, and then they remember that hallucination as if it was a real physical event. I think those are actually not the only three options. They're usually treated as like the main three things that could have happened. I think what gets underappreciated are these sort of like weird middle categories where, you know, uh, where like imagination and fancy and retelling and embellishment and all, all these different kinds of things sort of interact in a stew within the mind. Yeah. And there's so many ways this can happen. One uh, piece of research that I always just think is such an interesting little example of demonstrating how contagious imagery and ideation can be between one brain subsystem and another is a 2006 study called, Do You Remember Proposing Marriage to the Pepsi Machine? (laughs) False false Recollections from a Campus Walk. And this was in the Psychonomic Bulletin and Review uh, 2006 by by, uh, Seaman, Philbin, and Harrison. And basically the gist here is that students were asked to perform and to – so some were asked to perform and some were asked to merely imagine themselves performing or imagine seeing somebody perform activities both normal like checking a Pepsi machine for change or lying down on a couch to relax 
and also actions that were bizarre, like proposing marriage to a Pepsi machine <laughs> or lying down on a couch to have a chat with Sigmund Freud. And it turned out in this study, at least, that even just imagining performing these activities caused many subjects to later recall having actually performed them. Of course, this doesn't always happen. Like, sometimes you remember the difference, but sometimes you don't remember the difference. Sometimes the contents of our mind's eye are contagious in a way that can spread into memory. Things that we think about happening can in some cases become things that we believe happened. And this is po possible in people who have not been diagnosed with any conditions that cause psychosis or hallucinations. It's just one of the many interesting ways that you can see uh, memories being meddled with in, in this kind of contagious way within the brain. And of course, we do outright invent things. We Sometimes, invent beautiful yeah. things. We invent terrifying visions. And certainly there are hoaxers in the world. But still, even with hoaxes, there's, there's still this element of the human imagination that ultimately helped to dream up every god, demon, fairy, and, and extraterrestrial that we've ever considered. And once these things are created, they're essentially available as food uh, for our meaning-hungry minds. Mm -hmm. And so... The version of all of this that emerged in the post-World War II period and continues on to this day, though with decreased uh, energy, is that of the alien UFO. Oh, the, yeah. The unidentified flying object, the um, the, the alien visitation. And uh, today we're zeroing in on one particular aspect of UFO folk belief, one with some insightful connections, potentially, uh, to older religious ideas. We're going to be talking about MIB Men in Black. Should I sing the song from the movie? No, I, I, I don't think we should do that. <laughs> don't want to get night cheesed on here. That's right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, to be clear, <laughs> sure the, the Men in Black franchise I don't even aggressively <laughs> pursues IP. That um, is a big franchise. Uh -huh. They're still going strong. Oh, really? They're making oh, new yeah, ones? There's a new, the first one came out in 97. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's, there's a new one coming out like in the next year. I don't think I ever saw past the first one. I, I think I, too, have only seen the first one. Uh, they, they may, the other ones may be great. I don't know. But we're not really talking about those movies today. However, those movies are based on, I believe they were based on a comic book, but, but the whole franchise is based on this concept of men in black. Uh, the, the end result doesn't really do the original idea justice, in my opinion, um, even though many of us, me included, we, you know, we learned about Men in Black for the first time through watching this 1997 sci-fi action comedy. You know, I can't be positive, but I know I watched a lot of terrible, like, BS fringe documentaries when I was a kid. You know, all the stuff about how – I think I've said this on the show before. When I was in, like, second or third grade, I was big into, like, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs. I was convinced all that was real. And I oh, think yeah. I'd, I'd watched, like – I don't know what it was, it, whatever masqueraded as like educational programming on television that was just like propaganda for conspiracy theories and, and beliefs about the paranormal. Oh, I too was very confused by episodes of uh, specifically In Search Of, uh, yeah. hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and uh, Unsolved Mysteries, yeah. hosted by Robert Stack. Uh, however, I don't, I don't remember. There may have been episodes of Unsolved Mysteries that involve Men in Black, but if there were, I don't remember seeing them. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I saw something at some point that made me aware of the concept. Uh, but 
even if I wasn't aware then, yeah, definitely the movie came along. I think maybe – I don't know if it was before or after uh, the Men in Black movie. There was the episode of the X-Files, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which is one of the best episodes of all time. It still holds up today. It's so good. It's so funny. And it has classic Men in Black cameos in it. <laughs> Isn't the idea here that the Men in Black take on the guise of famous individuals of celebrities so that you can't report it to the police? Without sounding ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Which is funny because in in the episode, you can tell they kind of did their research. This sort of mirrors real things that people reported about men in black experiences. Sometimes people said that the experience would be, you know, ridiculous or absurd as in the implication is, oh, it's because they wanted to keep everything hush hush. And so they knew if they acted absurd, I wouldn't be able to tell people without them laughing at me. <laughs> Now, some of you out there, you might have heard about uh, Men in Black through uh, at least a couple of different films that came out. One came out in 1997, same year as Men in Black, titled The Shadow Men. And uh, I have not seen this yet, but I saw the trailer. It looks fabulous in a 1997 way, uh, featuring Eric Roberts, Dean Stockwell, and Andrew Pine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's more of a, it seems to be more of a traditional Men in Black movie uh, with with these like weird, tall, suited individuals with dark glasses that are uh, messing with their protagonists, trying to keep them from sharing some sort of uh, information with the world about UFOs. And then upon closer inspection, they don't seem to be quite human. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's a much earlier, actually, Men in Black plotline in a movie from 1980 titled Hangar 18. But certainly by the time that, uh, that Men in Black came out, by the time, uh, you know, the X-Files had had ample uh, opportunity uh, to, uh, to educate everyone about the idea, uh, we saw all sorts of other echoes in various uh, bits of media. For instance, the Thin Men in the XCOM games are classic Men in Black characters, like uh, thin, thin guys in suits uh, with weird um, uh, facial features mm. that are not quite human. Uh, there, uh, uh, Doctor Who, I believe, has a, a species called the Silence that show up that are very uh, Men in Black esque, and even uh, a couple of ultimately, you know, rather different uh, uh, bits of cinema. But the the agents from the Matrix are mm -hmm. essentially Men in Black. The Strangers of Dark City are, in many ways, Men in Black. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that with the with the Strangers. I definitely see it with the agents. Um, mm -hmm. Well, before we get into the particulars, let's just try to sketch out the broad kind of version of the men in black folklore. What, what would you say is the, the broadest possible interpretation of it? It's that most commonly somebody becomes in some way involved with UFO lore. They either have a UFO experience, mm -hmm. they see a UFO, or they have an abduction experience, or they begin researching UFO phenomena. That's right. And then suddenly men wearing black uh, show up, weird, possibly government law enforcement types uh, who, are, who suddenly show up and want to suppress you, want to silence you, either after you have shared your claim of, uh, of UFO sightings or what have you, or in many cases, before you share it. Yeah, so they, they tend to often be fond of like black, large black sedans, Cadillacs. They come and they, they approach you, the person who is interested in UFOs for some reason or doing UFO research or had a UFO experience. They tell you either you didn't see what you think you saw or they tell you to stop researching or they tell you to stop spreading the word about UFOs. Or occasionally in some reports, it's exactly the opposite. Sometimes 
people in black suits, men in black suits or black hats or whatever show up to say, actually, keep going, keep digging. There's more to see. There's more to learn. Yeah, they take on more of like a, like a deep throat uh, uh, persona in yeah. those stories. And throw in there uh, lots of variegated weirdness, you know, just sort of like strange flourishes on the story. Right. So uh, let's put all of this in context by start talking about the time frame here because I think the more we talk about it, the more obvious it becomes like where these elements, like even the deep throat element and the element of like like government corruption, uh, spies and espionage and what have you, where it all comes from. So uh, reading around a, a, about this, it seems like the sort of the patient zero for all of this was uh, a man by the name of Harold Dahl. This is 1947 when all of this took place. So claims were made by Fred Christman and Harold Dahl uh, about threats by men in black following sightings of UFOs in the skies over uh, Maury Island in the Puget Sound. Uh, and this was related in Gray Barker's 1956 book, that they knew too much about flying saucers, which <laughs> this book helped popularize stories of men in black. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of this is like, you know, this is the, the, the people who are into UFOs, like this is the, these were the texts they were reading and sharing and, and then um, basing some of their experiences on. Uh, so another brief thing about timeline is while various forms of paranormal abduction experiences seem to go way back in time, mm -hmm. the UFO thing really seemed to pick up around and after World War II. Right. And you can offer all kinds of reasons for this. I mean, some would have to do with, like, uh, say, alleged sightings of UFO by uh, Allied, you know, pilots and Air Force personnel during the war. Um, but other things might be might have to do with certain trends in science fiction movies and exactly, things yeah. like that. Now, another case, and this one was related by Peter M. Roycewitz, who wrote a, a really important paper that we're going to come back to because I don't want to spoil what we're talking about. Uh, by 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 saying the title just yet, but okay. we, we will come back to it. I mentions in 1952 in Connecticut, you had this guy by the name of Albert K. Bender. So Bender lived with his stepfather in the top floor of a house described by a local newspaper as a quote chamber of horrors. <laughs> but I mean, this seems like a bit by 1952 standards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, they just had a bunch of Halloween decorations up in his room. That sounds fun. Yeah, I mean, that's like my room growing up. So <laughs> you know, uh, nobody ever said it was a chamber of horrors. Anyway, uh, Bender was a big sci-fi fan, and he wrote a letter to a friend, state, quote, stating that he had learned the origin and ultimate goal of extraterrestrial visitation on the Earth. Unquote. But then he claims that what happened is suddenly men in black came up and they confronted him telepathically with the intercept about the intercepted letter and then forced him to shut down his various UFO interest projects. I mean, at least for a while, because he, he later writes a book about all of it and claims that the men in black were from another planet, among a whole host of other wild claims. Was this the one about uh, going to Antarctica, I believe? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's. It's wild in a way that, like, like you, you kind of want to tell them, like, stop, you stop there, because you had like a compelling story, you had just the right number of fantastic elements, but then you just you kept going with it. Uh, so, uh, Roycewitz he points out that uh, the Men in Black stories they really flourished for a very brief time, and between uh, you know 1966 and 1967, with multiple UFO researchers claiming that they had MIB encounters. They either encountered them alone or in pairs, though mostly in threes. And they claim that these individuals, you know, they showed up and they know way too much about them. They know about, you know, what their UFO experience might have been, uh, what the details are, and, and know, uh, you know, and they know about it before you, you even had a chance to go and tell other people about it. 
And a lot of these tales seem to be inspired or colored by Cold War espionage fiction. Uh, you know, they often claim, the men in black often claim to be military intelligence officers, or so the stories go. Well, yeah, with the, you know, 66, 67, it's hard not to miss the timing with like the James Bond franchise oh, yeah. there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and just the idea of like shadowy government figures, you know, at large. So interestingly enough, during the height of all of this, according to, um, to Roycewitz, a confidential correspondence from the Pentagon went out to intelligence command centers telling them to notify the Office of Special Investigations if anyone pretending to be a military officer attempted to strong or arm UFO witnesses. Which, which is interesting because I guess it's the, the idea here is that if enough people were claiming it, they probably said, look, be alert just in case there's you know, anybody going around pretending to be uh, law enforcement or federal law enforcement uh, and messing with UFO people. I think the most common allegation was that the, that they were somehow associated with the Air Force, right? Yeah, because they're the Air Force. They should know, right? Yeah. Well, and I think back then the Air Force might have had a stranger, more futuristic connotation than it does today. Now the Air Force just seems like a more mundane branch of the armed services. Well, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Now, there's also there's a lot of stuff in the in Men in Black lore that doesn't necessarily, or in many cases, thankfully, does not survive into our science fiction. Uh, for instance, uh, Roycewitz points out that there's this whole anti-Semitic strain of Men in Black lore from that time period that entailed a just a bunch of anti-Semitic nonsense, uh, which isn't surprising given the, the long history of uh, blood libel and conspiracy theories about the Jewish people and, and how easily modern conspiracy theories fall back into this same – down this same well as, as well. Yeah. Um, and, and if you if you want to see this for yourself, just spend 15 minutes on the internet. Like you just go go to YouTube and start looking around conspiracy theories and see how long it takes you to hit something just overtly anti-Semitic. Yeah, unfortunately, the, the conspiracy theory space is uh, often just run through with this stuff. Right. And then it goes beyond um, um, anti-Semitism. There's also a trend to describe men in black agents as Asian or ethnically ambiguous in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it generally embodies a kind of like like white American chauvinism yeah. uh, and, and just general idea. I mean, it almost just suggests that what could you do to make somebody weirder? Well, mm -hmm. you just generally make them not a white American. Right. So uh, Roycewitz shares a 1982 account by one Michael Elliott, and I'm just going to read a passage from it here. Quote, he had a dark complexion, but not Oriental or Indian, but dark. He had black hair with something of the greasy look, some, looking somewhat punk by today's standards. He was very thin, with a chiseled nose and chin, and had, and had sunken eyes. The man wore a black suit that needed ironing and possibly cleaning. He had on a white shirt and a black Texan-like string tie. Later, when he rose to leave, I remember noting that the suit was much too large for him, despite his being over six feet, as I estimated it. So there's a lot to unpack there. Like, yeah, just so much of the, like, the, the racial other, so many, like, just, just racist ideas about, like, uncleanliness and, uh, and so forth. But also, though, something that's strange and kind of different there is that I feel like later on the men in black phenomena came to be much more associated with like the black suits meaning a kind of government-associated authority and power. I think about right. like the cigarette smoking man in um, 
in the X-Files and right. stuff. As opposed to the kind of like weird rumple, like the suit needed cleaning and it was too big for him. That, that doesn't seem like it really fits with the what would end up as the later standard idea of Men in Black. Yeah, because certainly by the time you get to yeah, the more X-Files version of it and these these variations that uh, you see in The Matrix, for instance. It's very much an idea of men in black as a, like a symbols and or at least foot soldiers of top-down government conspiracy. Anonymous faceless authorities so that they sort right. of like represent anonymized power. And yet in these earlier stories, there, there were also some other additional weird factors we already mentioned the the, uh, the Air Force Association, but then there are these ad- additional dimensions uh, uh, to the lore in which, say, uh, for instance, they have exaggerated characteristics that are almost comical, like mm-hmm. they walk with a crazy gait, almost uh, drunkenly. Uh, there is one account that Roycewitz uh, shared where there's you know just talking about them. Just walking like in a weird way with, with like as if their hips were swivel joints. Yeah. Gliding and rocking effect. I mean, one gets the image of the, the Ministry of Funny Walks uh-huh. in your head when you, when you read these, uh, these stories. But uh, he stresses that you know, one has to, to, again, consider this from the vantage point of both tradition and experience. So tradition bearers keep the lore of something like Men in Black alive. Uh, through everything from weird fiction and movies to oral accounts and, uh, you know, like UFOlogy publications. Um, and, and even though they haven't necessarily experienced, them, experienced it themselves. And then you have passive tradition bearers who know about it but don't actually pass it along. And then there are those who claim to have definite experiences with men in black and they tell their stories, which, of course, may, may vary wildly. So it's, it's a, I think it's a great way to look at something like this and the interplay between these different categories, interpretation of paranormal experience via established lore, and then accounts uh, giving selective credence to that lore and inspiring new details as well, but again, very selectively. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's like someone saying, oh, you know, I, I read this story, there are men in black going around and they're, they're suppressing the truth about aliens visiting our world. And then someone's like... Yeah, I had this this really weird thing that happened the other day where these people in black suits uh, showed up. And you're like, yeah, yeah, this is lining up. And then they took me to Antarctica. And then they uh, uh, and then when we were in Ant- Antarctica, I met Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, and then they'll say, well, okay, well, still the, the basic principle lines up and that supports my, my story. Right. They, like you can discard the stuff about Antarctica but still say, well, like, well meeting men in black suits is not implausible. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I think on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the more of the meat uh, of the episode. We're going to get into the reason that we chose the title for today's episode, uh, MIB or NIB, uh, Men in Black or Nativity in Black. All right, we're back. Now, Robert, it seems, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that you were inspired to, to want to talk about this topic today because of this paper. Uh, it's an older paper. It seems to be sort of a classic in the ufology uh, uh, area. It was published in the Journal of American Folklore in 1987 by Peter M. Roycewitz, uh about the men in black tradition. Is, is this what got you into the subject? Yeah, I'd never really looked into Men in Black before, uh, aside from, you know, seeing some of these films that we've discussed. Like as a folklore tradition. Yeah, as a folklore tradition, I hadn't really read anything about it and then ran across this paper. Uh, yeah, the Men in Black experience and tradition analogs with the traditional devil hypothesis. Hmm. So obviously, I'm instantly captivated. Yeah. Um, 
And in case you, you didn't pick up on it, the title of this episode, the NIB Nativity in Black, that is uh, the, the Black Sabbath song. One of the greats. Oh, yes. So in this paper, he suggests that there's a lot of room to compare the Men in Black figure with that of the Christian devil. Okay, we can take a look at this. Specifically, he points to the tradition of the devil as this kind of a comic trickster in the 11th through 19th centuries, uh, a shadow figure that serves as a, a kind of counterpoint to that of a saint. Hmm. And I, I also have to add, he didn't really get into this, but it made me think back to um, our discussions of, of in the past about witchcraft theorists and succubi and incubi. Hmm. The, the idea here was that while demons could take on alluring forms to tempt sinners to greater sin, their guise could not be complete uh, because otherwise it wouldn't be fair to the faithful. You needed there to be a tell. So you might have a dude who's being seduced by a demonic succubus, but unfortunately, while she mostly looks like a beautiful woman, she's got, I don't know, like bear hands or something. Right, or duck feet is duck feet. specifically one that shows up in some of these old woodcuts. Like, like if you're if you're a sinner, you're probably going to either not look at the feet or you're going to see the feet and pretend you didn't see them and go on with your sinning. But if you're faithful, then at the very least, you'll notice that there are some demonic appendages going on here and then you should really cut and run. You'll be more observant. Exactly. So I, I'm reminded of that. It feels like there's a certain like level of that with the uncanny um, behavior and appearance that is often described in these. Mm-hmm. Um, also, going back to um, author Walter Stevens' take on witchcraft persecution that we've talked about in the past, uh, his idea was that it was in large part an effort to prop up failing faith in the supernatural during the early modern period. That's interesting. Yeah. We, so we've talked about this on the show before, but the idea that people often have wrong is they believe that like witchcraft persecution peaked in the Middle Ages and mm-hmm. like, the, you know, the medieval period, but that's not true. Right. It Which, was during an age of, of reason. Everything seemed to be on the uh, the uptick. Yeah. And that's when it really came about. And so what the idea here is that if people start having threats to the idea of their theology, of their religious beliefs, they'll counter those threats with attempts to prove it. And if you could prove that demons are real, then you can prove that God is real. That's right. Heaven, you know, tends to be a little stingy in dishing out proof of of its existence. But if hell can provide us with physical proof and or specifically carnal experience by which to prove its reality, then that by extension proves the reality of heaven and the reality of God. Now, we don't know if Stephen's interpretation here is correct, but I do think that's a really interesting way of reading that historical fact. Right, yeah, I think, you know, and I think he would probably agree that you have all these other factors involved as well, certainly um, an age of, of, of misogyny as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but I, I do wonder about all of that in relation to men in black and UFOs, because if there is any doubt to the reality of UFOs and alien abductions in your mind, and you would prefer to believe, if you, like the poster, want to believe, mm-hmm. then if you have strange men showing up and pressuring you to be silent, well, then that's even more evidence, right, that there's something here. Yeah. There's some truth. Uh, because otherwise, no one would care if you shared the truth with the world, right? Yeah, the devils wouldn't be seducing all these people if there if there weren't a god to fight against. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, again, uh, Royce Woods didn't really get into that idea, but that's kind of my own ponderings. Now, he did bring up the idea of tulpas Hmm. in Tibetan mysticism. So this is the notion that intense thought can materialize a form, a thought being. 
And in this uh, Men in Black, they're, they're kind of a tulpa of fear and anxiety surrounding Big Brother. Now, tulpas are uh, an interesting subject that we could maybe return to. In fact, mm-hmm. the listeners in the past have asked us to do episodes on tulpas. Yeah, the, we, we probably should then. It would be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe we get to read uh, an excerpt from, uh, from a Borges uh, uh, short story. Well, I do think there's something interesting to talk about with the idea of tulpas as materialized thought forms, sort of like, you know, imagination manifested as reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes especially to like virtual worlds and technology, you know, one of the things that the technology philosopher, I don't know if he'd call himself that, but I, I'd call him that, uh, Jaron Lanier, mm-hmm. uh, used to talk about with like the possibilities afforded to us by things like virtual reality is the idea to not just play games in virtual environments but to be more manifestly and directly creative than we could ever be in any other kind of environment, to have uh, methods through which we we just continually refine our abilities to translate thoughts and creativity directly into forms that can be sensed. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you could like, you know, under this kind of ideal virtual reality environment, you could have something like a tulpa. You could, you know, just imagine something and then have it brought into being in front of you and then interact with it. So as far as Roycewitz's um, use of the term here, I, I think what we're talking about here is a kind of subconscious projection of both the fear of mainstream rejection by authority concerning UFO sightings, as well as a fear of retribution. And... I think this is interesting because we we do see this a lot uh, these days, you know, in messaging against political and cultural others, Mm -hmm. you know, like a a political adversary is at once both the thing that doesn't take us seriously and is also actively working against us in a dangerous way. Yeah. So the enemy is both inept and insidious at the same time. It's funny, uh, Umberto Eco, you know, pointed out that one of his characteristics of fascism, as Mm -hmm. he described it, was that fascism perceives its enemies as both impossibly powerful and extremely weak. Uh, like at the same time, you know, the, 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 its enemies constitute this overwhelmingly threatening plot against the power of the, you know, the fascist contingent in the state. And at the same time, constantly talking about the weakness of their enemies and denigrating what they can do in contrast with the fascist's own strength. Is the men, So I wonder to what extent men in black are kind of a, a fear of and a desire for fascism, you know, like – like the fear of uh, these uh, these government enemies showing up at your doorstep to suppress you and also the desire for it, like the validation that would come with it. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, that's something that's always going on in like uh, conspiracy theory psychology is, mm-hmm. you know, if you uh, – not to say that there aren't real – you know, there are real conspiracies and real abuses of power and all that. But mm-hmm. in the ones that are more fanciful and imaginary and based on, you know, poor evidence and all right. that, uh, the, the, where people just build these architectures textures of shadowy organizations out there pulling the strings on all the puppets everywhere. You can absolutely see this tension between, of course, like the fact that the conspiracy is a terrible thing and you think it's a terrible thing and you wouldn't really want it to exist. But at the same time, the fact that you believe in it kind of does make you want it to exist because mm-hmm. because other people don't believe you and you want to be proven right. And so evidence of this horrible, unimaginably bad thing actually is kind of pleasurable and exciting to you. Yeah, and this gets – this is something you see with UFO um, sighting experiences and alien abduction experiences as well is that no, ma- you know, no matter to what degree the individual believes the experience happened, mm-hmm. and, and I, I certainly want to drive that home, that there are 
there do seem to be cases where people believe something happened. Yeah. And and, and it may be traumatic. Uh, and, and I don't want to dismiss that trauma. Uh, but at the same time, like being a part of it is to be a part of something important. Like yeah. the, they, the aliens came to me. So there is something, if not important about me, then at least my experience is important now. And and that that can be empowering, I and mean, we see that in in you know religion all the time too. Uh, the idea that uh, that that something out there in the universe takes interest in us, like that that is of value. So you know sometimes it's just nice that the men in black care, and they <laughs> they, they showed up, make them bake them cookies. Now uh, Rosowitz also connects the men in black idea to that of the brothers of shadow in Eastern mysticism. And this is something I, I wasn't familiar with this uh, previously either, though I guess I might have seen some echoes of it in various 90s television shows. Yeah, I, I feel like this link might be kind of tenuous, um, but I tried to go dig deeper into this to figure out what's going on here. So it seems to me that the idea of the Brothers of Shadow is sort of a, an appellation by Western occultists like, uh, like say, uh, the Theosophists or mm-hmm. uh, Madame Blavatsky and all that sort of unfairly applied or associated with a sect or suborder of Tibetan Buddhism known as the Dugpas or Drukpas, the Drukpa lineage. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. But So I was thinking about the concept of paranormal agents in black suits. Mm -hmm. And like why why is that right there in their name, the fact that they wear black suits? Um, It's so interesting in what it reveals about the about culture and psychology and archetypes. Like the black suit and tie is clearly a very meaningful part of the the folklore architecture here. It says something about power, says something about anonymity. It says something about formality and professionalism and maybe some other qualities. But the black suit, more traditionally, I mean, now that's this is very becoming very global, but mm-hmm. it used to be a more like Western kind of European and American model of, you know, how you demonstrate professionalism and culture. Right. And it was sort of spread to other areas as a part of, of spreading Western culture. Yeah. And so uh, I was wondering, okay, what would men in black look like at other times and in other cultures with different ideas about the meanings of colored clothing and different types of clothing? I was trying to imagine, okay, if you have men in black in Chinese UFO experiences, mm-hmm. would they dress the same? Would they wear black suits or would they tend to more often wear something different? So I tried to see if I could find any men in black type reports from, for example, China, and I didn't really come up with anything. I was reading an article from uh, 2013 in the South China Morning Post about the UFO Society of China. Uh, This article reported, quote, over the past 10 years, there have been 5,000 reports of UFOs in China. And it told the story of a man who claimed to have been abducted by an alien woman from Jupiter who had sex with him during his absence from Earth. And there were no men in black any where in these stories. Now, there may be some type of analogous men in black experiences in Chinese UFO encounters, but if, if so, I couldn't come across any evidence of it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I haven't done any any reading on really Chinese UFO uh, accounts. Mm-hmm. I've done a little bit on the, 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 the like Sasquatch cryptid reporting in China, but mm-hmm. not, not the UFOs. Uh, but that's interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting that clearly UFOs are a somewhat global experience phenomena. Mm -hmm. Uh, People claim to have had these experiences in different parts of the world, but not everybody's going to have the exact same like kind of feelings about men in black suits with ties. Right. Uh, Or maybe they will. I don't know. Maybe that's a more universal kind of signifier at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the the UFO theorist would 
argue that, of course, the men in black are going to wear black suits if suits are the standard of dress, and they're just going to st- they're going to wear whatever is appropriate given the culture and the time. But what would that be? I mean, that mm-hmm. that would help help us get a better idea of what the men in black exactly are supposed to represent. Well, well, let's say if they landed in, uh, say, uh, Victorian England, uh-huh. what would they have worn? Would they be dressed up like, uh, like, like the, uh, the, 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 the police? They definitely wear bowler hats, I or, think. <laughs> they look like Scotland Yard. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, whatever the, the, the standard is, right? Edwardian men in black? Like, that should be the sequel. <laughs> That's what I want to see. Well, I'm sorry. I got sidetracked. I want to come back to the idea of the, the Brothers of Shadow. So I think that from what I can tell, this is a term applied by like these Western occultists uh, to a sect or suborder of Tibetan Buddhism, as I was saying, called the Dugpas or the Drukpas, uh, the Drukpa lineage. And, and I think this association seems to be unfair as they obviously do not see themselves as like sorcerers or shadowy nefarious figures like the Western occultists characterize them. Uh, though for what it's worth, older Western taxonomies sometimes referred to the monks of this order as red hats. And they do dress in red robes and hats on some occasions, though this is true of many orders of Tibetan Buddhist monks, not just the Drukpa tradition. So obviously the cultural associations are, are getting lost across history and translation here with this whole uh, relation to the Brothers of Shadow. I don't think this means that uh, Tibetan experiences with UFOs and men in black would necessarily involve people dressing in red, though it, it does make you have to consider this, like what parts of the, Im- the men in black belief architecture are contingent and what parts would be universal. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to discuss the men in black just a little bit more. All right, we're back. You know, another comparison between the the men in black experience tradition and other types of paranormal experiences people tend to have mm-hmm. is experiences that are commonly associated with uh, with sleep related episodes. Oh yes, uh, like the shadow people. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting topic that I think I, I discussed in a much older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but it seemed appropriate to bring it back up here. Um, you know, basically, it all hinges on a 2006 study, a Swiss study that was published in the journal Nature, uh, about a possible connection between various shadow people um, uh, experiences and uh, something actually going on inside the brain. Now, what exactly are these shadow people experiences like? So uh, basically, it's, the, it's, it's not so much a, a full-on men in black scenario. Like I saw a weird man in a black suit standing, in, uh, you know, he knocked on my door and we talked and he told me not to tell anyone about flying saucers, nothing like that. But it's more of a, uh, a, s- a symptom that's been reported for a while by uh, uh, psychiatric and neurological patients where there is a feeling, there's a sense of, of a dark figure, say, in the room with you. Like looming over your bed, maybe exactly, or something. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, that's there in the Men in Black tradition. Some some of these reports mentioned that like people who had encounters with them, sometimes they'd be standing there over their bed. Yeah, looming over you like a ring wraith, right? Um, so the researchers in the study they, they made the discovery while evaluating a psychologically normal twenty two year old woman for surgical treatment of epilepsy. And when they electrically stimulated her brain's left uh, temporoparietal junction or TPJ. They repeatedly gave uh, – she repeatedly had the sensation of a lurking shadow in her presence, like a shadow man. Hmm. 
And uh, she That's creepy. Yeah, she perceived this shadow person just behind her, interfering with her attempts to read a book. And when the researcher stimulated her in a seated position, she perceived herself to be seated in the entity's lap. Whoa. Um, quote, he was clasping her in his arms, which she described as an unpleasant feeling. So essentially, what seemed to have been taking place is she was observing her own body the whole time. But as the TPJ concerns self-processing, self-other distinction, and multi-sensory body integration info, the electrical stimulation caused her to attribute her own actions to an alien other. And a similar distortion may be at work in various other, uh, you know, psychiatric uh, uh, manifestations of alien entities. Mm. Uh, you know, anything that involves there being an, uh, some other being in your room, be it a, an alien, a demon, a man in black, a spirit, a fairy, etc. So the, the researchers pr uh, proposed that electrical stimulation of this area in the patient disturbed multisensory and, and uh, sensomotor integration of information with respect to her body, uh, leading to the appearance of a first-rank symptom of schizophrenia in a person with no psychiatric history. And it's notable here that the hyperactivity in the temporoparietal cortex of patients with schizophrenia may lead to the misattribution of their own actions to other people. Hmm. So we see, you know, a related uh, um, situation there. Well, so, that, that seems like a, another, I mean, this is a more clinical type of condition, but... Um Related to the milder version I talked about earlier, how, you know, the, the, there appears to be sometimes just contagion mm -hmm. between what's going on in one brain subsystem and another brain subsystem. You exactly. Know, the, uh, the actions that you see other people do, maybe you attribute your own thoughts to your imagination of someone else's mind. You think they're thinking whatever you're thinking or uh, you, you, you blur the lines between imagination and memory. Absolutely. So I don't present this as, as the answer for shadow people experiences or certainly for men in black uh, because there are various reasons that one might hallucinate, misremember, uh, or engage in any of these, uh, these uh, situations we've discussed. Um, Oliver Sacks in his book Hallucinations specifically calls out uh, hypnopompic hallucinations, uh, the hallucinations that we have coming out of sleep. Mm -hmm. um, he, he describes these as a source of malevolent entity perception. Uh, so, it, you know, it could certainly be one of the reasons at play. But then again, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, something like Men in Black, it's not just people having, a, having an experience and then reporting it. Mm -hmm. It's also other people interpreting uh, bits of that experience and other people creating things, creating fantasy and sci-fi, et cetera, that gets up uh, becoming a part of other people's hallucinations and other people's interpretations of hallucinations. So, you know, it's it's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah, interesting. I was reading an article uh, from Sl because so I was wondering, okay, do men in black encounters still really happen? Yeah. You, you read about them from the 20th century, uh, from the 1950s and 60s and on through the 80s and 90s. And I, I was like, I haven't really encountered a claim of a men in black encounter or experience that uh, that happened in in recent decades. What's going on there? So I looked this up and I, f I did find an article. I found an article in Slate by Aisha Harris from 2012 about whether men in black sightings still happen. 
uh, because most of the stories you run into tend to be older. And so the author in this article asked uh, ufologist Jerome Clark, who is mentioned in uh, Roycewitz's article, whether people still report men in black encounters these days. Apparently the reports have, quote, tapered off significantly in the 15 years since the original Men in Black movie was released. <laughs> that did it. Um but Clark insists he does not think that the film had anything to do with that. Instead, he attributes it to a lack of investigation into the issue in recent years, especially since the passing of the ufologist John A. Keel, who apparently cataloged a lot of these experiences, uh, did a lot of the, this kind of research. And by research and investigation, we're talking about continually writing about it and keeping the idea alive in uh, UFO enthusiast communities and publications, right? Yeah, but I think also like, you know, collecting other people's experiences. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so on the other hand, uh, the British ufologist Nick Redfern in insists that uh, men in black encounters do still happen as chronicled in his book, The Real Men in Black in <laughs> 2011. I don't know if that's trying to cash in on a movie tie-in. Uh, but personally, I, I would say despite what Clark says, I would tend to wonder if the movie Men in Black does have something to do with the decline in, in Men in Black reports. I, I think this could be sort of inverse to what often happens where UFO sightings seem correlated with like flying saucer science fiction mm -hmm. and elements of these alien encounters sometimes seem to correlate with elements that show up in fiction over time. And I wonder if this inverse correlation, if, if it is actually there, I mean, I don't know, but I wonder if this inverse correlation is there, if it might have to do with the fact that the Men in Black movies are comedies, like that they yeah. make the idea funny. And more, more so than that, because certainly we have funny UFO and funny alien movies that have come out over the years. Certainly, it wasn't a case where um, uh, Earth Girls are easy killed off the idea of alien abductions. But you still have a mix, right? You have serious films and scary films mm -hmm. and films that, that clearly are made by people who want to believe, whereas the Men in Black films are really – outside of those other – those earlier Men in Black films that I mentioned in the X-Files episode it's, and, and various sprinklings of uh, Men in Black lore and other uh, uh, pictures and shows, I can't think of anything that's really served as a counterbalance to the Men in Black comedy movies, you know, like if we had just had one like deadly serious fire in the sky-esque men in black film, like, like that would have done a lot perhaps to keep it going. Well, wait, what about the Eric Roberts movie? Oh, well, that was what, 97 though? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it came out, of, out of the wrong time. So you might have had balance initially, <laughs> but then what happened when Men in Black 2 came out and 3 or the, and the, the upcoming one? I think the next yeah. one is the fourth one. I could be wrong. But um, really there's the oh, whole... I think I'm asking you for the second time in this episode they're if they're least, making another one. Yeah, there are at least four. Yeah. <laughs> so I only saw the first one of the movies, but I remember it being gross in that way. Like especially late 90s movies were gross where it was a time of uh, like CGI snot and slime, <laughs> a lot of mucus. Am I wrong? No, there was a, there was a lot of gross uh, stuff in it because the, the villain uh, – uh, was a was a roach uh, like essentially a large roach in a human costume, like wearing a human skin? Uh, and there were a lot of uh, gross uh, sight gags involving that character. Mm -hmm. Did I send you a link? I think I did send you a link to where I found the uh, Men in Black feature film novelization. Oh yeah, well I guess there would have been one of those given the time frame and uh, and the, the you know the scale of the film. Man. 
That's got to be like the ultimate movie novelization. <laughs> I you would not have imagined it could happen. And yet it did. You know, I would love to hear from anyone out there. First of all, if you've seen any of these uh, other Men in Black film, not, I mean, not the, the comedy sequels, but like the 1997 film or the, the, the earlier film, and you have any insight on them. I'd also love to hear from anybody who read the original comic books. Like, what were they like? Uh, do, are the fans are there are there fans of the original Men in Black comics? And if they are, do they? How do they feel about the films? Uh, I'm always interested in the the you know how a particular franchise evolves like that. For that matter, if anyone out there has had experiences with you know with Men in Black or UFOs, you know we would we would love to hear from you. Um, you know, we promise that if you we write in with your accounts, we will not. Uh, make fun of you. We will, you know, skeptically uh, and enthusiastically approach it as we always do. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, some of the various other uh, sort of paranormal episodes that we've recorded over the years, you can find them at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. That's where you'll find links out to various social media accounts. That's where you'll find a tab for our store where you can buy shirts and stickers and uh, other things with our logo on it, uh, with various episode-specific designs on them. You can get those. You can wear them. You can deface public property with them. Um, it's all available to you. Uh, another great way to support the show, however, is just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. You don't have to you know, piss off the authority figures. Just go and rate and review us wherever you get this podcast. It helps us out tremendously. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Cuddlefish, the second oil age. And his kingdom was full of darkness. I don't dispute the Eros data, but if he's down here, we'd know. Not blood, but darkness. The Earth's black riches. No, I could taste it on my lips. Today, I want to talk to you about the science of transgenesis. Transgenesis.show